Mike Global IQ is 109. 100. 145. 122. 108. 132. 183. 159. 147. 103. Which introduced Pike Logan, an operative that you certainly want on your side. Brad turned full time to writing after his retirement as a lieutenant colonel from the U.S. Army Infantry and Special Forces in 2010, which included eight years with the 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment, known popularly as Delta Force. Over the holidays, I had the chance to read an advanced copy of Brad's new book, Hunter Killer, his 14th, published just this week. With over 2 million copies sold, the Pike Logan series has had a habitual home on the New York Times bestseller list, and I'll wager you'll be like me, and once you turn that first page, you won't put Hunter Killer down. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Brad, we're going to get to your book, Hunter Killer, in just a minute, but I'd like to ask you first to comment on a recent post on your blog, bradtaylorbooks.com where you commented on whether or not the killing of Qasem al-Soleimani, which just took place one week ago, and you commented whether or not it should be described as an assassination or not. Former Senator Jim Webb, military historian himself, uh, had a very strong piece in the day's Washington Post saying it definitely was an assassination. Well, I haven't seen his piece, and I'm definitely going to read it now because I'd be interested to see what he has to say. We start mixing words up when we start talking between legal and colloquial. There are plenty of dictionary definitions of what assassination is, and you can read about, you know, Count Montfort and the Crusades or whatever, that, that he got assassinated. But legally, there has to be a political component to the assassination. In fact, we have an Executive Order 12333, which forbids uh, anybody from conducting political assassination for the United States of America. Unfortunately, it was not defined in the EO. It's not defined in statute. It's not defined anywhere. But it's taken to mean, I've if you're going to kill somebody on the battlefield, but you know who you're going to kill, that's not assassination. If I was going to direct all my weapons against the uh, battalion commander's tank, and I know his name, he's Captain or Lieutenant Colonel Schmedlap, and he's got three antennas on his tanks, and I tell everybody, aim for that tank, I'm trying to disrupt the command and control network of that battalion in my battle. Now, I know the guy. I've specifically targeted him. Does that make me an assassin? No, it doesn't. There's got to be something more. I've got to do something beyond just trying to kill that guy for it. Say I know... My next-door neighbor's wife's getting beat to death by the husband. I know that guy. I go in there to save her, and I beat him to death. Well, I knew him. I targeted him. I killed him. Am I an assassin? No, I'm not. So there's got to be much more to it than that. And Soleimani, I don't think, rises to that level. He was a military member. He was targeting the United States. And I'm not making a judgment call whether the hit was good or bad strategically. I'm just making a clear definition of whether it is assassination or not. You can certainly do something that's not assassination and have bad effects from it. So I'm not saying there's good effects from it. But he was a military member targeting United States forces through proxy forces and through his own cuts forces. And while I was in Iraq fighting in Iraq, we have killed Iranians. That mean literal Persian troops in the cuts force. And that makes him a legitimate military target. So does the United States have the right to act if it's in self-defense according yes. to the UN Charter? Yes. Yeah. Charter Chapter 51, I think it is. Uh, every nation has a right to self-defense. I mean, he was a very powerful guy, don't get me wrong. He's the uh, second most powerful a, person here. Right, and not in a formal way, but certainly in an informal structure way. He was like uh, our Patton, McChrystal, and Petraeus rolled into one guy. 
very smart, very uh, strategic, and very powerful in Iran. So there's no doubt there are repercussions to it. But it was not like targeting um, the Ayatollah. I mean, that would be complete assassination. The guy has no military capabilities. He's only a head of state, and you're trying to affect uh, governmental change in Iran. That is assassination. Hitting somebody who's targeting us is not. How stable is the regime in Iran? Very stable. And in fact, it's more stable now. One of the reasons I didn't think that's such a great hit is people think Iranians are going to run in the street and cheer us on for invasion. That's not going to happen. They have a huge, while they may not like their own government, they have a huge homogenous Persian ethos. Uh, and they don't like to be messed with. And the government is, is not going to fall anytime soon. And people s seem to think that Iran's got all this, you know, these this protests going on, things like that. And what I tell people is uh, right after Trump was elected, we had millions of people in the streets protesting. Does that mean that uh, Kim Jong-un, just go with this analogy, if he invaded America and toppled Trump, they would like that? No, they wouldn't. They would side with the Americans. They wouldn't cheer on Kim Jong-un. And these people are not going to cheer us on. Oh, clearly this has given them a reason to rally around their flag. Exactly. What led you to become an author, and really, who is Pike Logan? Well, I'll take the second one first. Pike's kind of a compilation of people I served with. People ask me that all the time, are you Pike Logan? Do you wish you uh, were? So, yeah, actually I do. <laughs> <laughs> then I wouldn't have a titanium knee and everything else. It's, it's very hard to get the level of special operations that I did. But even there, there's a cut line. There's a cut line of uh, talent. There's a cut line of just innate skill. And I usually equate it to, uh, for civilians, it's like, I would say it's like the PGA Tour. There's probably 1% on earth that can play on the PGA Tour. There's a guy who's 100th on the money list that nobody's ever heard of. He's playing on the tour, but he's 100th on the money list. And then there's Tiger Woods. Logan's Tiger Woods, and I'd be 100th on the money list. Yeah, one of the things that you wrote, I think it was an introductory sentence, that perhaps the American public doesn't really realize how important special forces are and the role that they're playing. What do we need to know that perhaps we're not thinking about? Well, actually, it's a double-edged sword. Number one, special forces has uh, a very unique skill set. And they, I mean, they, we have a mantra, uh, it's humans over hardware. You've got to get select the right guy. You have to have uh, the right moral compass. You have to have a guy who can think on his feet. That's more than anything else. They want somebody who's a problem solver. Yes, yes, you have to be able to shoot. Yes, you have to be able to run. You have to do PT and you have to do all these other physical things. But if you can't solve a problem, you're not the man they're looking for. Given that, it's easy to say, wow, those Special Forces guys are great. Instead of having you know, three groups, let's have 100. Well, you can't. There's just not that many people who can do it. That's like saying I don't have 100 teams in the NBA. There's not that many good basketball players out there to do it. Uh, as a panacea, I think it's, it's overused. It, uh, special Forces did something here. Let's throw them in there. And the next thing you know, we're breaking the force. It's getting very, very hard to do. I guess the best thing I want people to know is that's what they are. First and foremost, is problem solvers. They are not Rambo running around killing everybody. They certainly have a lethal edge, but they're there to solve problems. I want to ask you about some of the changes we're seeing with SEAL and also Delta Force. There's been some guys who have done some things that weren't really appropriate. I was thinking right. particularly of the SEAL Gallagher, who mm -hmm. essentially was pardoned by, by President mm -hmm. Trump. Um, I believe one of the commanders of the SEAL Force said, we really need to reassess really what mm -hmm. is the level of professionalism. How do you see all of that now? Well, the first thing is you meant Delta. There's nothing, nothing like that has happened with Delta, I okay. can assure you. There's, none of that has come out for my old unit. Uh, but my unit is incredibly small. Uh, one misconception people have in the public is that they're, uh, they, compare, they think they're comparing two like things. So there's SEALs, there's Delta, there's Rangers, whatever. Uh, it's more like saying there's a barrel of apples over here and there's an apple. There are, are 10 times more SEALs than there ever would be in, in my unit. 
and because the bigger you get as they expanded, and I'm, I hesitate to even talk about the SEALs because I'm not a SEAL. Uh, and they do, they're addressing their culture problems. They, part of their problem uh, set early on was they selected for physical ability and not mindset. Does it concern you that President Trump engaged himself in this? It does. That, it's a, that was a political stunt. Uh, the military justice system was coming out. Now, special forces, I'm a special forces officer. Uh, Goldstein, Major Goldstein, was due to go on trial. He was also part. I think he would have been acquitted, to be honest with you. I follow that case pretty closely. And obviously, I hadn't seen all the evidence, but I think he had enough to get acquitted. But that shouldn't have happened either. It's a complete political wash because the general public, ever since bin Laden was killed, puts everybody on a pedestal. And if you're on that pedestal, that's something I can use for my political aspirations. And so that's what he did. I'm going to pardon Gallagher because he's getting torn up. And even to the point where you have a thing that you go to the Trident board, same thing, they have special forces to take your tab. If they take your Trident, it means you're no longer a SEAL. Well, that happens all the time. Somebody gets uh, accused of beating his wife or something like that, finds out he's guilty of beating his wife. Well, they, they'll take his Trident. You're no longer a SEAL. You go back out in the Navy and do whatever you're going to do, but you're not, you're not the caliber we want in the SEALs. Uh, I don't know how you could possibly hold a Trident board now because the next guy comes in and says, you know, you had a DUI and ran over a cat. We're going to take your Trident. What do you mean you're taking my Trident? You didn't take the war criminal's Trident because he interceded. It just completely undercuts the chain of command. So your first book uh, in, the, in the Pike Logan series was written, what, eight, nine years ago? Yes. How has he changed? He's had to grow. The, uh, uh, when he first starts out, he's, his moral compass is broken. He, he has, he's lost his moral compass, put it that way. He used to have it. He was at the tip of the spear, and then it, a tragedy occurs to him, and it's broken. And uh, the hardest part about writing a series is specifically that the, the, the character has to grow. Otherwise, it's just stagnant. You're writing the same book over and over. And uh, for him, he's become, he went through a hard cycle, and he's gradually learned to come back to where he was. He is now, at this stage, he is now back on top with his moral compass intact, and he is starting to run around doing missions. How much has he aged? I mean, what was his age when you started it? I'm going to give you a secret. He has not aged. So if we could all be so lucky. <laughs> well, he was aging. So I, the very first book has his age and everything in it. And then a couple of books later, I talked about, you know, some aches and pains he had. And he's because he's getting older, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but uh, then I realized this is a full-time job. And I'm writing a lot of books. And so I was like, what am I going to do? Because he's 36 back then. So now I'd say he's roughly 39. But... Uh, at that point, he stopped aging. So I asked uh, Robert Crace, who's a, a great writer. He, had, he is Elvis Coles, his main character, was a Vietnam vet back in the 80s. He was a Vietnam vet. Well, he's still writing Elvis Cole. And he said, if I hadn't stopped this, he would be in a wheelchair chasing criminals. And so he said that I just made a decision he's never going to age. He's like Superman. So another writer in your genre is David Baldacci, and he has yes. a number of characters in different series mm -hmm. he writes. Do you feel somewhat constrained that you're just writing about one guy? No, well, first of all, I'm not writing about one guy. It's uh, My books are actually kind of unique in the genre because it's not a single person. For my mind, it was always from the get-go. My publisher calls them Pike Logan thrillers, but they were really Pike and Jennifer from the get-go. She's been there from the start. She's been in every book. Who's Jennifer? But Jennifer Cahill. Jennifer Cahill is the, actually the person who gets Pike back on the path of moral compass. Uh, they collided in the very first book. She has a black-and-white moral code. His has gone completely gray. He just slaughter anybody for anything. Uh, and she kind of brings him back from the brink. And they're, they're together throughout all the books. But in, on top of that, uh, Pike works with a team because there's no such thing as uh, James Bond or Jason Bourne who does everything by themselves. It just doesn't happen. And so he works on a team. He's inside what I call the task force. And every one of those characters are fully developed. Brett, Knuckles, they're all in there. 
So one of the things I particularly enjoyed about the book was that it just didn't happen in Charleston, South Carolina, in your home. It happened all around the world. And mm -hmm. this book is on location in Brazil. Yeah. Why Brazil? This all started from my last book, Daughter of War. I had a tangential uh, antagonist in there. It was a uh, private military company called Wagner from, or Wagner, if I guess you pronounce it correctly, because it's named after the composer, a Russian military corporation. That's a true thing. Their companies all over the world. They're in... Um, they're in Libya right now, they're in Syria, they took over Ukraine, and I saw a story about them being in Venezuela, and I had no intention of using that for a book, but I still was interested in what they were doing around the world, and so I started reading about it, and I got into the geopolitics of uh, South America, and the uh, issue of Russia wanting to get what they call our near abroad, and I found Brazil just because I was looking at things, and the election going on down there was an absolute clown fest. They had a car wash scandal. The guy who was leading the presidency was in prison for corruption. Uh, and then they said he couldn't run anymore. And the car wash scandal was, it's the biggest uh, political scandal of a sovereign state in history. And it didn't really make the news in the United States, but it certainly did down there. Caused a collapse of the government and chaos, which is still to this day affected. And Petrobras, the, uh, they discovered the largest oil fields in the 20th century off the coast of Brazil. And Petrobras is the one that was doing all the corruption. And I thought if Russia wanted to get in here and start meddling around, then that's a prime opportunity. And that's where the story came from. So current events really drive your agenda. They really do. They do. Sometimes it's the hard thing about writing current events is that they're current. And that has bitten me in the butt more times than I can count. So I, in one book, Getting Me in Mind, I think it's my third book, uh, there's a guy named Al-Siri down in Yemen. And he's a master bomb builder. He's a real guy. He did the underwear bombs. He did the printer bombs. He's done all kinds of bombs. He's a real master bomb builder. So I put him in the book because the book was going to have something to do with Yemen. And um, he, halfway through writing the book, we killed him in a drone strike. And so I'm like, oh, rats are fressing. So I took him out of the book and changed it. And then the book comes out and he comes up on a video. He's still alive. So you got to be careful when you're doing current events. You got to be on the right side of the edge and not the wrong side. Yeah. What's your next book? Can you tell us? Uh, I don't have a title yet, but yeah, it's going to deal with China. China's a very big coming threat. Uh, deal mainly with their uh, use of artificial intelligence, false information, the Taiwan Straits, trying to take Taiwan over. And so I wish they'd hurry up with Hong Kong because i got to write that thing. and I, I need a solution out of that one. So do we have to wait for another year? Yes. Yeah. That's not fair. But, <laughs> well, he was doing two books a year, and that was so grueling it almost broke. Billy just got familiar with your writing just a few weeks ago. My fault. But sure. congratulations. I know this, too, will be a, a New York Times bestseller, as all your other books. All right. Thank you. I want to take this moment to wish all of our listeners and their families a very happy new year. And while 2020 has not opened peacefully, let's hope that the new year is one where the corner is turned and that there can be a new hope for the many areas of global conflict. I'd also like to thank our producers, Kara Schechtman and Kayla Smith, for bringing Global IQ to you. And as always, I hope that you'll subscribe and rate Global IQ on iTunes, Stitcher, and on your favorite app. And with that, I ask, what's your Global IQ?